0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses: SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English, and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled "Results of Spiritual Research." translated by Simon Blaxland de Lange, this is Lecture 11, given in Berlin on the 13th of February, 1913, entitled, Leonardo's Spiritual Greatness at the Turning Point Leading to the Modern Age. The name of Leonardo is constantly invoked before the minds of innumerable people through the wide circulation of what is perhaps his best-known picture, the famous title, Last Supper. Who does not know Leonardo's Last Supper, and who, on the basis of such knowledge, has not come to admire the mighty conception that comes to expression in this picture? Here we see the pictorial embodiment of a moment filled with significance, a moment which is experienced by countless souls as one of the most significant in earthly evolution, the figure of Christ in the middle with the twelve disciples on either side of him. We see these twelve disciples in deeply expressive gestures and attitudes. We see the gestures and attitudes of each of these twelve figures individualized in such a way that we may well receive the impression that every kind of human characteristic comes to expression in these twelve disciples, every way in which a particular soul can, as regards its temperament and character, relate to what is expressed in the picture. In his treatise on titled Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, close quote, Goethe has described, perhaps more impressively than anyone else, that moment when Christ Jesus spoke the words, quote, "...one of you will betray me." Close quote. In the many reproductions of this picture that exist all over the world, we see what comes so expressively toward us from each of these souls who are so intimately connected with the one who is speaking, and look toward him so reverently, once he has uttered these words. There are depictions of the Last Supper which derive from an earlier time. Without going any further back, we can, for example, explore representations of this event from Giotto to Leonardo, and we shall find that Leonardo introduced what one might call a dramatic element, for it is a wonderfully dramatic moment that he presents in his picture. The earlier representations appear to us as peaceful, expressing merely a sense of togetherness, while Leonardo's pictorial depiction of the Last Supper would appear to be the first to conjure up before us an expression of deep psychological insight with full dramatic power. But if, from the world-famous reproductions, one has formed this impression of the idea of the picture in one's soul and heart, and then comes to Milan, to that old Dominican church of Santa Maria della Grazia, and sees there on the wall what can only be described as blurred, indistinct, damp daubs of color, which is all that remains of what has gained worldwide fame through its reproductions. One may perhaps investigate further, and thereby receive the impression, that it is already quite some time since what the people who saw it, after it had been painted by Leonardo, spoke about with such enthusiastic and fervently rapturous words, has been visible on that wall of the old Dominican church. What must once have spoken to souls from this wall as an artistic wonder, not only through the conception, which has just been brought to expression with a certain difficulty, but which must have so spoken through Leonardo's highly expressive marvel of color, that in these colors the most intimate aspect, indeed the very heartbeat of the souls of the twelve figures, came to expression, must for a long time have been no longer discernible on this wall. What has this picture not had to suffer over the ages? Leonardo felt himself compelled to depart technically, from the way that frescoes had been painted on such walls before him. He found the sort of colors that had previously been used not sufficiently expressive. He wanted to make emotions of the most delicate kind visible on the walls, and therefore tried painting in oils, which had never previously been done for frescoes. This ran into a whole series of obstacles. The state of the wall, and indeed of the whole place, was such that Relatively soon these colors were inevitably affected by damp, which emanated from the wall itself. The whole room, which served as the Dominican's refectory, was on one occasion completely under water in a flood. Many other factors played into the situation, such as the quartering of soldiers in wartime. The picture was subjected to all these things. There was a time, moreover, when the monks of the monastery did not behave with particular piety toward this picture. Thus they found that the door that led beneath the picture to this refectory of the monastery was too low, and one day they had it made higher. This ruined part of the picture. Then, on one occasion, a coat of arms was placed over the head of Christ. In short, the picture was treated in the most barbarous way. And then there were some people who can only be described as artistic charlatans who overpainted it, so that very little of the original paintwork can be seen. And yet, when one stands before the picture, an indescribable magic emanates from it. All the barbarism, all the overpainting and weakening that it suffered could not fundamentally destroy the magic that proceeds from the picture. Today it is still no more than a shadow extending over the wall, but a magic quality lives in this picture. For the most part, this lies only to a certain extent in the painting itself. It is the conception that works on the soul, but its influence is powerful. Anyone who has to some extent familiarized himself with other works by Leonardo, anyone who has tried to gain familiarity with his creative work through reproductions or by viewing pictures ascribed to him, which have been more or less preserved as he painted them, that are scattered throughout various European galleries and has, moreover, studied what he wrote in the course of his life, anyone who has become familiar with his life that ran its course from 1452 until 1519 will stand before this picture in the refectory of the Dominican monastery of Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan with quite particular feelings. For it is indeed the case that one feels that to the same extent that something still remains of the magical creation that Leonardo once painted on this wall, there continues to be present for the universal consciousness of humanity, evidence of the immense greatness of the power and content of this all-embracing personality of Leonardo himself. The extent of the influence of Leonardo's work on people's souls today has a similar kind of relationship to what this great personality brought into world evolution, as these faded and blurred colors have to what he once conjured up on the wall. And just as one stands filled with sorrow before this picture in Milan, so does one behold with an equal sorrow the whole figure of Leonardo. Goethe points out that if one takes into account the descriptions of previous biographers, one receives the impression that in Leonardo a personality appeared who worked everywhere with fresh energy, viewed and related to life with joy and embraced everything with love, with a tremendous thirst for knowledge that wished to understand everything, fresh in both soul and body. Then one may perhaps turn one's attention to that picture which is considered to be a self-portrait and hangs in the Royal Library Museum in Turin and one sees this self-portrait of the old Leonardo, this face with expressive lines caused by suffering, with an embittered mouth and with features which betray what Leonardo had to feel because of his opposition toward the world and toward everything that he had to experience. Thus this personality appears in a remarkable way before us at the beginning of the modern age. If we now turn once more to the picture in Santa Maria della Grazia and try to study this shadow on the wall of the refectory together with the oldest engravings, the oldest reproductions that remain of this picture. And if we try, as it were, with quote, the eyes of the spirit, close quote, in Goethe's words, to let this picture come to life again within us, a feeling may perhaps arise in us that leads us to ask when the one who painted this picture put the final touch to it, did he go away satisfied with what he had done? Did he say to himself, quote, You have managed to portray what lived in your soul? Close quote. It seems to me that one can arrive quite naturally at this feeling, at this question, Why? If one views Leonardo's life as a whole, one cannot avoid having a feeling of this kind. As one begins to form a picture of his life, how he was an illegitimate child, the son of a father of no more than average ability, Sir Pietro of Vinci, and a peasant maid, who then entirely disappears from his life, while the father marries someone of his own social standing and has the child fostered so that the child grows up alone, left to the devices of nature and his own soul. One realizes what an immense reservoir of life forces must have resided in this human being, to enable him to remain so vitally alive, for he did indeed retain his youthful energy. Since he showed a talent for drawing at an early age, he entered the school of Verrocchio. His father sent him there because he believed that his talent for drawing might prove useful. The young Leonardo was employed as a painting assistant to the master. An anecdote is related from this time that Leonardo once had to paint a figure and that when the master saw it he decided to give up painting altogether because he saw that the abilities of his pupil surpassed his own. This would seem to be more than a mere story if one sees Leonardo for what he was. We then find him growing up in Florence, constantly raising the level of his abilities as a painter. But we also find something else. If we follow the development of his talent as a painter, we have the impression that every year he embarked upon the greatest artistic plans and was always making new ones. He also had commissions from people who recognized his great gifts and wanted to own something that he had done. Leonardo first formed an idea of what he wanted to create and then proceeded to engage in study. But what was the nature of this study? It involved entering, in a highly characteristic way, into all sorts of details that had to be considered. Thus, if, for example, he had to paint a picture with three or four figures in it, he set to work in such a way that he did not only study a single model, but he went about the city and observed hundreds and hundreds of people. He would often follow one person for a whole day, if he observed an interesting feature. Sometimes he would invite all sorts of people of different classes to his home and tell them all manner of things to amuse or frighten them, for he wanted by this means to study facial features for the most manifold soul experiences. Once when a rioter had been caught and was being hanged, Leonardo went to the place of execution, and the drawing in which he tried to capture the facial expression and the whole gesture of the person being hanged has been preserved. In the bottom corner of the picture is a further head in which the exact expression is recorded. Some caricatures of Leonardo, quite incredible figures, have been preserved, and we can see from these what he wanted to achieve. He had, for example, drawn a face and proceeded to explore what happens if one makes the chin bigger and bigger. In order to see what significance the various parts of the human form have, he enlarged a particular portion of the body so as to ascertain how this member fits naturally in the whole human organism. We find caricatured forms in all manner of distortions in Leonardo's work. He kept drawings in which he has repeatedly sketched a particular aspect and which he wanted to use for certain projects. Although many are the work of his pupils, there are a number that are his own. If one takes all this into account, one has the impression that he would often work in the following way. On receiving a commission, he would study the details in the manner described. Then some particular aspect might arouse his interest, and he now no longer focused on the purpose of the picture, but sought rather to explore the peculiarities of an animal or human being. If he had to paint a battle, he would go to a riding school to study the details, or he would go somewhere where horses were left to themselves, and in this way he lost sight of the original conception of his explorations. Thus he worked on one study after another, and in the end was no longer concerned with returning to the picture. Thus we see from some of the more significant pictures from that first Florentine period, although all these pictures have since been overpainted and the original form can barely be recognized, such as the title Saint Jerome and the title Adoration of the Magi, that he also made studies for these pictures such as has been characterized, and one altogether has the feeling that this man lived in the fullness of world mysteries. He sought to penetrate these mysteries and to reproduce the secrets of nature in an original way, but he never came to the point of being able to say to himself that he had completed anything. One must put oneself in the place of such a soul that was too rich to bring anything that it had undertaken to completion a soul that was so receptive to the mysteries of the world that no matter where it began, it was impelled to pass from one mystery to another and never come to an end. One needs to understand Leonardo's soul as being too great in itself to be able to reveal its full greatness. As we pursue our study of Leonardo, we note that he was commissioned to undertake two tasks by Duke Lodovico il Moro in Milan, who had received him there in his court. One of these was the title Last Supper, and the other was an equestrian statue for the Duke's father. We see that Leonardo worked for fifteen to sixteen years on these two projects. However, there was much else going on at the same time, for in addition to characterizing Leonardo as we have done, we must, if we are to understand him fully, add that the Duke had not summoned him only as a painter. Leonardo was also an excellent musician, perhaps one of the best of his time, and the duke had found particular pleasure in his musical gifts. But the duke continued to employ him also because Leonardo was one of the leading military engineers, one of the leading hydraulic engineers, and one of the best mechanics of his time, and because he was able to promise the duke that he could supply him with engines of war, which were something of a novelty, machines utilizing steam power and suspension bridges, which could easily be constructed and speedily dismantled. At the same time, he worked on constructing a flying machine. In order to accomplish this, he devoted his attention to observing how birds fly, and he was probably one of the first to investigate this. But when one is perusing Leonardo's writings today, one must always remember that these are only copies that contain much that is inaccurate and therefore correspond in their form to what one sees today of the Last Supper. Yet in all these instances it is clearly apparent what a great, all-embracing spirit dwelt in Leonardo. So we can see that Leonardo not only supported the court of Milan on all sorts of occasions, through his gifts as a painter and by arranging theatrical events, but by developing various military and other schemes, and also assisting the builders of the cathedral with his advice and practical help. Moreover, we know that he trained innumerable pupils who went on to work on the most diverse projects in Milan, so that it is scarcely possible to know today the extent of Leonardo's involvement in the development of the city of Milan and its surroundings. In addition to all this, Leonardo made innumerable studies for the equestrian statue intended for the Duke's father, Francesco Sforza. There was no limb of the horse, that he did not study hundreds of times and in hundreds of positions, and in the course of many years he completed the model of the horse. This was then destroyed when the French invaded Milan in 1499, and the soldiers used the model as a target and shot it to pieces. Nothing remains of the immense labor of a personality who, as one can indeed say, sought to investigate one world mystery after another in order to bring to fulfillment a project where life became manifest within dead material substance, just as life reveals itself in the mysteries of nature. We know how Leonardo worked on the Last Supper. He would often go and sit on the scaffolding and spend many hours brooding in the front of the wall. Then he would take a brush, make a few brush strokes, and then went away again. If he wanted to work on the figure of Christ, his hand trembled. Indeed, if we piece together everything we know, it must be said that Leonardo was happy neither inwardly nor outwardly when he was painting this picture, which is so world-famous today. To begin with, there were at the time people in Milan who were displeased that the painting of the picture was taking so long. There was, for example, the prior of the monastery, who could not see why an artist could not paint such a picture quickly, and he complained to the duke. He too considered that the project was dragging on, and he spoke to the artist accordingly. Leonardo answered that as the picture was to portray Christ Jesus and Judas, thus the greatest opposites, it could not be painted in one year, and there were no models for these two individuals in the world, neither for Judas nor for Christ Jesus. He also did not know, he said this after he had been working on the picture for several years, whether he would ever complete it. And then he added that if he ultimately could not find a model for Judas, he could always use the prior. Thus the picture was extraordinarily difficult to finish. But Leonardo was always not happy inwardly, for this picture exhibited in a particular way the contrast between what lived in his soul and what he was able to depict on the wall. At this point I need to present a spiritual scientific hypothesis that may occur to anyone who dwells upon everything that one can gradually come to know about the picture. This hypothesis came to me when I was trying to find an answer to the question that I posed before. If one considers Leonardo's life in this way, one will conclude that there was an immense amount living in this man that he was unable to make outwardly manifest to humanity, and for which the outward means were lacking and so was he able to incorporate to his satisfaction something of the greatest magnitude in the Last Supper as he doubtlessly wished to do this question arises quite naturally when one sees how again and again he tried to explore one mystery after another through his studies in order to achieve something that in the end he did not bring about one is bound to ask such a question Then the answer comes almost out of itself. If Leonardo, on the other hand, had only progressed with the equestrian statue, which he intended to be a miracle of sculptural art, to the point of making a model of it, which was then destroyed, so that he never even set about the casting process, if therefore he completely bade farewell to this statue after sixteen years of unfulfilled work, how, most likely, did he leave the Last Supper? one has the feeling that he left this picture with a sense of dissatisfaction. If all that one can see today of this picture is a ruin of blurred, damaged colors, and if for a long time nothing has been visible of what Leonardo once painted on the wall, one may perhaps maintain that what he painted on the wall could not even remotely have represented what lived in his soul. In order to arrive at such a conclusion, One needs to put together all manner of different impressions that one can receive by looking at the picture. But there are also some outward reasons for it. Among the writings of Leonardo that have survived, there is a wonderful title, Treatise on Painting. The essential nature of painting as an art is described, how it must work in relation to perspective and color, how it must work in accordance with a particular conception. In spite of its being only a fragment, this book by Leonardo, about painting, is a marvellous work, the like of which has probably not been written. The principles of the art of painting are depicted as only the greatest genius could have presented them. It is, for example, wonderful to read how Leonardo shows the way in which horses must be depicted in a battle scene, giving the impression of bestiality and yet grandeur, such as belongs to the portraying of a battle. In short, this work shows us all Leonardo's greatness and also his frailty. We shall speak about this later. Above all, it reveals how he always regarded his art as a painter, as a matter of studying how reality presents itself to the human eye, E.Y.E. The way that light and dark and shades of color are used in painting is beautifully described in this book by Leonardo about this art. And if we had to confirm that there lived in Leonardo's soul the ardent longing of his conscience, never even in the smallest detail to offend against the truth, which, as we shall see elsewhere, he prized so highly, if we wanted to show how this lived in his soul, we could say that this is everywhere apparent in his treatise about painting, with its injunction never to offend against the truth of the impression ensuring that this impression is always in accordance with the inner mysteries of nature. If we contemplate his Last Supper, there are two things of which it can be said that they do not wholly accord with Leonardo's requirements with respect to painting. One of these is the figure of Judas. From the reproductions, and also to some extent from the shadowy image of the painting in Milan, one has the impression that Judas is completely covered in shadow, He is quite dark. Now study how the light falls from the different sides, and how in the case of the other eleven disciples the lighting conditions are portrayed to the most exemplary degree in accordance with reality. Nothing really explains the darkness on the face of Judas. We do not receive a satisfactory explanation of the reason of this darkness from the external lighting relationships. And when one comes to the figure of Christ Jesus, a purely outward perception, without having recourse to spiritual science, can yield no more than a suggestion. For just as little as the blackness, the darkness of the figure of Judas is justified, so is the sun-like quality of the figure of Christ, standing out from the other figures in the manner indicated, equally without justification. We can understand all the other countenances from the way they are illuminated, but not that of Judas, nor that of Christ Jesus. If, however, one proceeds from a spiritual scientific point of view, the thought that quite naturally arises is that the painter has striven to make it apparent that in these two contrasting figures of Jesus, in quotes, and Judas, in quotes, light and darkness are governed by inner rather than outer factors. He probably wanted to make us realize that the face of Christ appears to us such that the way that it is lit cannot be explained outwardly, but that we are to believe that the soul behind this countenance endows it with the power of light out of itself, so that it can shine in defiance of the lighting conditions. Likewise, with respect to Judas, one can have the impression that this figure, as it were, conjures up a shadow, which is not explained by the shadows woven round it. It is, as said, a spiritual scientific hypothesis, but one that I have developed over many years, an hypothesis that can be seen to be all the more confirmed the further one enters into the whole problem. According to this hypothesis, one can understand how Leonardo, who in his works and studies consistently endeavored to be true to nature worked with a trembling brush to depict a problem that could be justified with respect to this one figure. And then one can understand that Leonardo could well be bitterly disappointed, and indubitably so, because it was impossible, through the means of the art forms available to him, to bring this problem to expression with complete truthfulness and veracity. For he could not yet do what he wanted, and eventually despaired of the possibility of achieving it, and therefore had to leave a picture behind which did not satisfy him. And then one can answer the question as to the feelings with which Leonardo felt in accordance with his whole being and spiritual greatness. Yes, Leonardo most likely left this picture with the bitter feeling that in his most important work he set himself a task whose execution could never satisfy him with the current means available. And even if no eye, E.Y.E., in later centuries will see what Leonardo had magically created on the wall in Milan, it was in any case certainly not what lived in his soul. Indeed, if one pictures him in relation to his most important creation, one is tempted to ask, what mystery is actually concealed behind this figure of Leonardo? When we considered the personality of Raphael a fortnight ago, We tried to show that such a personality can be understood quite differently if one bases one's investigations upon spiritual scientific foundations, if one is clear that the human soul is something that forever returns in many earthly lives, so that a soul that has been born at a certain time does not live only this one life, but in its whole disposition and in the whole manner of its development, brings with it gifts and aptitudes from previous earthly lives and now incorporates what it has brought from previous earthly lives into the present one, finding itself confronted by what the spiritual environment now offers. If one views the soul in this way, recognizing that it enters into existence with an inner spiritual inheritance that derives from repeated earthly lives, and if one accepts that the whole evolution is meaningful and wisdom-filled, If one presupposes that something does not appear by chance in certain epochs, but in accordance with rule and law, just as the blossom of the plant appears after the green leaves, if, therefore, one accepts that the history of human evolution is formed through wisdom and the human soul returns ever and again from spiritual regions, it begins to be possible to interpret the figures of particular individuals. However, what can be studied with respect to the lives of human individuals becomes more clearly manifest if one considers such exceptional human souls. If one studies Leonardo in the way that we have tried to summarize in outline particular moments of his life, one is led again and again to the background from which this soul stands out. This background is the time into which this soul was placed, between 1452 and 1519. What was this time like? It was the time before the ascendancy of the modern natural scientific worldview, before the world conception of Copernicus came to prominence, before Giordano, Bruno, Kepler and Galileo were active. How do we regard this time from the point of view of spiritual science? We have repeatedly drawn attention to the fact that the further we go back in the course of human evolution, the more human perception of and interaction with the surrounding world become different from what they are now. In ancient times of human evolution, we find in every soul a kind of clairvoyance, by means of which souls had insight into the spiritual world at certain transitional stages between sleeping and waking. This original clairvoyance was lost in the course of time. But until the 15th century, there still remained a residue of it from former ages. The clairvoyance itself had long since disappeared. What remained was a feeling that the human soul had a connection with the spiritual background of the world. What souls formerly beheld, they continued to feel. And although this feeling had already become weak, they nevertheless experienced themselves as connected in the center of their being with the spiritual influences that live and weave through the world, just as the physical processes in the human body are connected with the physical events of the world. It forms part of the laws of evolution that the old relationship of the human soul with the spiritual world had to be broken off for a while. Modern natural science would never have been able to blossom if the old clairvoyance had remained. This whole former way of perceiving the world had to be lost in order that souls could devote themselves to what presents itself to the senses and to what can be scientifically established by the intellect that is bound to the brain. The world conception of natural science, which has become established from the time of Leonardo until today, was only made possible through the loss of the old spiritual perception of mankind, and through man's inclining himself, as one says, objectively, in quotes, to outward sensory perception, and to what the intellect is able to grasp as a result of it. Today we again stand at a new turning point, at the beginning of that time, when through modern spiritual science... It is again possible for human beings to come to a spiritual way of looking at things. For the development of natural science has a twofold significance. It had first to furnish humanity with a certain wealth of natural scientific knowledge. In the course of the centuries, since the appearance of Copernicus, Kepler, and others, since natural science has gone from triumph to triumph, This has been incorporated in a wonderful way into practical and theoretical life. This is the one thing that has been brought about through natural science in the centuries since the time of Leonardo. The other is something that could not arise immediately, but which became possible only in our time. For not only can what one has learned through the Copernican conception of the world, through the observations and research of Kepler and Galileo, and through modern spectral analysis and so on, be attributed to natural science, but also a certain education of the human soul. The human soul first directed its gaze toward the world of the senses. In this way, natural science was developed. But through natural science, new ideas, new concepts were formulated. And where natural science has rendered its greatest service is not through sense perception, but through something quite different, This has already been indicated. In one particular sphere, people relied on sense perception in the time before Copernicus. What resulted from this? They believed that the earth stood still in space and that the sun and the other planets moved around it. Then came Copernicus, who had the courage not to rely on sense perception. He had the courage to say that if one relies entirely on sense perception, one does not make any empirical discovery, and that one arrives at empirical discoveries if one strictly thinks through everything that one has previously observed. Human beings then followed in his footsteps, and it is altogether a failure to recognize the true situation if one were to believe that natural science attained its present heights because humanity relied only on the senses. What has come to humanity through natural science has, however, also made an impression on human souls. The ideas of natural science live in our souls. They have educated our souls. In addition to what the natural sciences have given in terms of content, they have also been a means of education for human souls. And in that natural, scientific ideas are not merely thought but lived souls have developed the maturity actively to seek spiritual science purely out of themselves. Mankind first had to become sufficiently mature for this, and accordingly, centuries needed to elapse since the time of Leonardo. Now, let us consider Leonardo. He enters into this time with a soul that in an earlier existence had belonged to those initiates who had raised themselves in the old way to the mysteries of world perception. When he was born in the fifteenth century, this could not be continued. For in earlier incarnations, in so far as these previous earthly lives made it possible, one may have immersed oneself in the mysteries of the world in a great and mighty way. But how one brings them to consciousness in a new existence depends on one's outward physical body. A fifteenth-century body could not bring to expression the inner thoughts, feelings, and formative powers that Leonardo had received into his being at earlier stages of existence. What he possessed from earlier times worked only as a power, but he was confined within a body, living in the age directly before the blossoming of natural science. The time was coming, its dawn already imminent, when people wanted to perceive the world of sense existence only with their senses and think only with the intellect that is associated with the instrument of the brain. Leonardo was constantly driven to seek the spirit, for he brought this with him from former lives, and this aspiration that he felt for the spirit was exhibited by him on a grand scale. Let us now view him as an artist. Art had become something entirely different in the time when Leonardo lived from what it was in the Age of Greece. Let us try to imagine what it would have been like for a Greek artist to create, for example, a sculptural form. What kind of feeling do we have when we contemplate, for instance, the statue of Marcus Aurelius in Rome? Those who fashioned something of this kind would never have molded its individual forms from an external model as, say, Michelangelo or Leonardo did in their detailed studies. The wonderful horse of the statue of Marcus Aurelius was certainly not studied in the way that Leonardo studied his horse for the equestrian statue of Francesco Sforza. And yet, how alive these old statues appear to us now! Why is this? The reason is that human souls, in Greek times, felt themselves to be creators of their bodies because they felt themselves to be at one with the whole world. In the age of Greek art, one felt, for example, in an arm, all the forces that formed the arm. One had an inner sense of the independent inner being of one's own form. People beheld forms not from without, but as knowingly created from within, in that they were still conscious of the power that fashioned them. This can be outwardly demonstrated today. Look at the Greek statues of women. They are all experienced directly. Thus they are all depicted at the time of life when there is an expansion of growth. We always have the sense that the artist is creating from nature because he was within the spirit of nature, because he felt himself connected in his soul with the spirit of nature. This feeling of being connected with the spirit that lives and weaves in everything was to be lost in Leonardo's time, and it had to be lost, because otherwise the new age could not have emerged. This is not a criticism of the age, but a representation of the meaning of the facts. Let us now see how Leonardo sets to work by having an inner knowledge, an inner experience in his soul, which, however, does not come to consciousness. There is something that works in a living way on these forms, but Leonardo cannot take hold of it inwardly. He feels as though separated from it, and now nothing satisfies him. He stands there in the expectation of this natural scientific world conception, for it has not yet come into existence, but he cannot possess it for himself. Take his writings... On every page there are things that people rediscover only in the course of the next three centuries and have sometimes still not discovered. Leonardo had the most wonderful ideas, which in his time could not be made use of. We find them in his writings and also in his artistic creations. Thus we experience in him the powerlessness that a soul had to cope with, in an age when the old kind of world conception had come to an end, and the new one had not yet emerged. This new world conception led inevitably to the splintering of the former comprehensive human outlook into a perception of details. We see emerging a specialization of specific branches of activity. With Leonardo everything still appears to be united. He is at once a great painter, a great musician, a great philosopher, a great technical expert. He united all this in himself, because his soul came over from olden times, possessed of great gifts, and in the new age can touch everything, but cannot penetrate it. And so, from the human point of view, Leonardo appears as a tragic figure but when viewed from a higher viewpoint can be seen as being of immense significance at the turning point to a more recent age. One can see this for oneself if one further examines what Leonardo has created. He brought his most important projects only to a certain point, and his pupils then worked further on them. Even with such pictures as his title John or the title Mona Lisa in the Louvre in Paris, we see that the way they were executed technically meant that they soon had to lose their brilliancy. But then we also always see that Leonardo could never do enough to satisfy himself. It is not possible without having the pictures in front of us to speak about the details of Leonardo's paintings. If one contemplates them, it becomes apparent that Leonardo, as an artist, was always coming to limits beyond which he was unable to go, and that what lived in his soul could never arrive at the point where it reached from a soul experience to a conscious insight, so that, in a moment, something lit up from that stage of soul experience in such a way that one might rejoice and then sink back in sorrow, because it did not come to clear consciousness. It did not once do so for Leonardo. We follow Leonardo with feelings of bitterness, when we see how in the end he was brought to France by Francis I for the last three years of his life, and spent these years in the dwelling place assigned to him by Francis I in spiritual contemplation of the mysteries of existence. Then he appears to us as the lonely man who cannot really find anything in common with the world surrounding him, and who must have felt an enormous contrast between what he experienced as the foundations of existence which can find their form in art, and what he had been able to give to the world in no more than a fragmentary form. If one thinks of things in this way, one can look at Leonardo and see that here is a soul where much is going on, much, an infinite amount, is going on. It is staggering to observe what this soul has contributed to human evolution, and What this had outwardly manifested as a gift to human evolution, even by the time of Leonardo's death, is a small part of what lived in his soul. How do we stand before the economy of existence if we were to adopt the view that human existence is fully contained in what becomes outwardly manifest? How senseless and purposeless does the life of a soul such as that of Leonardo appear when we see what went on within it and what it was able to suffer and endure on account of this, and when we compare this with what it could have given to the world. What a contrast there would be if we were to say that the soul should only be regarded in accordance with what it made outwardly manifest in life. No, we should not think of it in this way. We must look at it from another standpoint and say, whatever it may have given to the world, what it has experienced, what it went through in its inmost being, belongs to another world, a world that in contrast to our world is of a supersensible nature. Such individuals are above all a proof that the human soul has its place within supersensible existence and that such souls as Leonardo have something to do with supersensible existence and that what they can give to the outer world is merely a by-product of what they have to go through as a whole. We only come to a right impression if we add to the stream that manifests itself in outward human events another supersensible stream, and say something runs in parallel with the sensory stream, and such souls are deeply embedded in this supersensible stream. They are obliged to live in it in order to form a link between the realm of the senses and that of the supersensible. The existence of such souls becomes meaningful. Only if we are able to accept a supersensible existence in which they are embedded. Thus we see little of Leonardo if we view his outward creativity. We gain the impression that this soul still has something to sort out in supersensible existence, and we then say to ourselves that we understand. In order that this soul can, in the totality of its life that runs its course through many earthly lives, always reveals something of its qualities to mankind it had in its existence as Leonardo to pass through a life whereby it was only able to bring to expression the smallest part of what lived within it. Thus such souls as that of Leonardo are indeed world riddles and riddles of life, world riddles incarnate. What I wanted to present today should not be encapsulated in sharply defined concepts, but it should give an indication of how to approach such souls. For spiritual science should not be giving out theories. Spiritual science should, through all that it undertakes, comprehend man's life of feeling and experience as a whole, and should itself become an elixir of life, so that through it we acquire a new relationship to both world and life. Spirits such as Leonardo are quite especially suited to lead to this new relationship to the world and to life that we can acquire through spiritual science coming into the world. When we contemplate figures such as Leonardo, we can say that they enter existence full of enigmas because they have to live out something greater than their age can give them, because they bring with them something from their former lives. Souls such as Leonardo not only enter life at an inconspicuous level, but in the way that Leonardo himself did, born of a father of no more than average ability, and of a mother who soon completely disappears from view after giving birth to an illegitimate child, Leonardo was brought up among very ordinary people. Thus we see him having to rely wholly on his own resources and giving expression to what he had brought from previous lives. When we consider the unfavorable circumstances of his birth, we recognize that they did not prevent the greatest soul capacities from coming to manifestation. Thus we see Leonardo's soul, so healthy, so comprehensive in its nature, that we can echo what Goethe says out of his great soul, He stood there in all his symmetry and fine proportions as a model of humanity. And just as the power of comprehension and clarity of the eye, E-Y-E, truly belongs to the mind, so clarity and intelligence were possessed by our artist to the highest degree. Close quote. If we apply these words to Leonardo, and they are indeed applicable, we can apply them to the youthful Leonardo, who appears before us with a bodily and spiritual vigor, accomplished, joyous in creating, and when meeting the world, and at the same time with a longing for the world, a complete human being born to be a conqueror, a person who was also full of humor, as he showed on various occasions of his life. And then we turn our attention to that drawing that is considered to be a self-portrait, and justly so, to the old man in whose face much experience, much difficult, painful experience, has engraved deep furrows, whose features around the mouth indicate the whole disharmony in which we see the lonely man, far from his fatherland, under the protection of the king of France, still struggling with the world, but lonely, forsaken, misunderstood, although loved by friends who had not failed to accompany him. Thus we are struck quite especially by the greatness of this spirit of Leonardo, with all the suffering that it endured, by the way that it accommodated itself to this body, first fashioning it perfectly and then leaving it embittered. We behold this countenance and feel the genius of humanity itself looking out at us. Indeed, we begin to understand this age, the sunset period in which Leonardo lived, and the age in which Copernicus, Kepler, Giordano Bruno and Galileo lived, who heralded a new dawn and we see all the limitations and constrictions that Leonardo's great soul had to experience. We understand the age and understand the great artist who stands behind all human means and who ultimately can only work with human means. Having explored the subject through spiritual science, we must bring the whole of our human intelligence to bear as we contemplate Leonardo's face and we shall see the whole nature of the age gazing out at us from it. Yes, from these embittered features the despondent human spirit looks out at us. We must come to recognize it in order to understand the full greatness of the power which had to be present, so that a Copernicus, a Kepler, a Galileo, a Giordano Bruno could arise. In truth we only acquire the appropriate reverence for the whole course and evolution of the human spirit, if we learn to further intensify our sense of the tragedy that we feel as a result of Giordano Bruno's death at the stake, through beholding Leonardo's soul with its sense of powerlessness in the preceding age of decline. Leonardo's greatness becomes clear to us only when we gain an inkling of what he was unable to achieve. And this is connected with something that we want to add by way of a summary of what we have been considering today. It is connected with the fact that the human soul can be satisfied, indeed filled with delight, at the sight of imperfection, although most strikingly so by great rather than small imperfections, at the sight of that creative activity which because of its greatness fails in its execution. For in forces that are dying away we have a sense of the forces preparing the future. And in the sunset, we have the promise and hope of the dawn. As we contemplate human evolution, we must be constantly aware that the course of all progress is such that when what has been created falls into ruin, we know that from the ruins new life will always blossom forth. The End of Lecture 11